Welcome. Good evening, everyone. I am Al Jackson, affiliated with Moms for America. And I am solo tonight because Juline, we're out west, and she is visiting with her sisters as four out of nine, and they're together and having a great time. But I'm so grateful for the opportunity to be here with you all. We are going to discuss seminar one section four the perils of freedom probably my most favorite section of of seminar one where we talk about god's hand in the building of america we are going to go inside of the constitutional convention we're going to go right into independence hall which is located in philadelphia pennsylvania if it's not on your bucket list I invite you to put it on your bucket list because it's a wonderful place to go visit. The room has been restored. So much history went on there. You can feel the spirits of the founders as you sit in that room. They've got great tour guides, it's free. And we are going to make that room come alive today. I just, I'm really excited about this lesson. So I am going to use a PowerPoint presentation today, if that's okay with the group. We are going to discuss section one, section four of seminar one. Next week, we're gonna get into seminar two, which is the charter of freedom, where we will learn firsthand how the founding fathers, through their study of history and study of governments, were able to take the best parts of those governments ignore the bad parts and come up with a government to protect our rights. It's really beautiful, the, the inspiration that they receive from Father in Heaven and working collectively to bring about the Charter of Freedom. And then Seminar 3, we will discuss the root causes of what the, the mess that we find ourselves in today. And the, the, the reason I love that particular seminar is that we will uncover systematically how the Charter of Freedom was unraveled. Because if you can understand how it was systematically done, then in seminar four, we can talk about how to systematically put together. So stay with us each week. I'm so grateful for the sacrifice that each of you are making to be here. It's no small thing. You all should be commended for your desire to learn these things. So I am going to share my screen and pull up the first slide, which is entitled The Perils of Freedom. Okay, there's the presentation, The Perils of Freedom. So America wins the Revolutionary War, now what? Let me talk about the conditions of America during the time after the war. There was internal revolts that were being threatened. Economic depression overtook the 13 colonies with high taxes and rioting in the streets. The inflation rate among the states was pretty high because the states were printing paper money that was not backed by gold and silver. The New England states wanted to succeed from the Union. New York said good riddance. English soldiers were even parked on the north side of America up by Canada 
waiting for us to fail. The king did not call his troops home until they realized in 1796, yep, looks like they're going to make it. Now we can go home. And then you had the Spanish coming up from the south, laying in wait for America to collapse. So you've got economic depression, you've got inflation, you've got taxes, you've got rioting in the streets, and that's the state of America at the time. And it's funny because you think about what's going on today and we have similar circumstances. So let's go to the first slide. So there is the room where it all took place and the quarreling new states finally agreed to meet. And it's actually a miracle that the Constitution, Constitutional Convention even took place based on what I just highlighted previously about what's going on in America. So George Washington calls for a convention of the states as he writes letters to each of the states pleading with them to call a convention. Nothing came of it. And what prompted Washington to do this was the military was actually planning a military coup to seize power and make George Washington king. There was a Colonel Louis Nicola who wrote a letter to General Washington advocating for this military coup, which would place George Washington as ruler or King George number one of America. And his reasoning in the letter was for how poorly the states had treated the soldiers during the war. So there was a long list of complaints, seven years of neglect by the states of the soldiers. They were in rags, they had not been paid, food was scarce, and when they did find it, it wasn't even fit for the hogs to eat. To eat. Of course, Washington was mortified, so he called for a meeting with his officers on March 15, 1783. And he actually pled with them, but wasn't making much progress. So he decided to read a letter from a congressman who was willing to help. And let me read to you that account. It's found in The Making of America, a book written by Cleon Skousen. And it says here, this is George Washington. He held up the letter which was closely written due to the shortage of paper and tried to read it. And this is a biographer, James Flexner, who was there. And this is what he, what he said. He said, the officers stirred impatiently in their seats and then suddenly every heart missed a beat. Something was the matter with his excellency. He seemed unable to read the paper. He paused in bewilderment. He fumbled in his waistcoat pocket, and then he pulled out something that only his intimates had seen him wear, a pair of glasses. George Washington explained, gentlemen, you will permit me to put on my spectacles, for I have not only grown gray, but almost blind in the service of my country, close quote. This simple statement achieved what all Washington's rhetoric and all his arguments had been able to achieve. The officers were instantly in tears and from behind the shining drops, their eyes looked with love at the commander who had led them all so far and so long. Washington quietly finished reading the Congressman's letter, walked out of the hall, mounted his horse and disappeared from the view of those who were staring from the windows. 
As those who had fought beside Washington in the heat of many battles pondered his words, they voted unanimously to support their leader in his peaceful, constructive approach to solving their problems. Wonderful story. So Washington actually called for a meeting of delegates to discuss trade between Virginia and Maryland. And he did so because these two states were fighting and quarreling over fishing and trade rights. Trade rights. So in September 1786, a trade conference was called. Only five states were represented, so it wasn't a quorum to conduct business. However, they saw merit in the meeting. So then the Congress called for a convention of all the states to discuss putting together a new government. And they scheduled this convention for May 14th, 1787. So the delegates arrive and this convention, and I'll talk about this a little bit later, but it was filled with the most outstanding political leaders in America. So 73 delegates by the states were appointed, but only 55 showed up because of the expense. They had to provide their own expenses. And a lot of them, because of what I stated earlier about the state of the economy, had to borrow money to get there. George Washington was almost unable to attend. He had rheumatism in his shoulders from sleeping out in those winter colds, cold winters and during the war. So he had to put his arm in a sling and get on his horse and ride from Mount Vernon up to Philadelphia. Benjamin Franklin, 81 years old, very feeble, couldn't walk very well. So he was transported by coach every day to the convention. The two leaders that were unable to attend were John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, but they made mighty contributions even though they weren't there because John Adams, even during the war, before the war started, had written a paper that highlighted what checks and balances are or a divided government. It was laughed at when he first submitted this paper, but it, it served as a foundation for the discussions. Thomas Jefferson, who was not there, he was a minister to France at the time. John Adams was in England, but Jefferson was able to send hundreds of books to James Madison and his fourth draft of a Virginia state constitution to James Madison so he would have it. Let me give you kind of a snapshot of some of the men who were there and actually their backgrounds. So two of the men were college presidents. Three were or had been college professors. One of them was George Wythe, who we've talked about previously, who trained up Thomas Jefferson. Four had studied law in England, 31 lawyers. Nine were born in foreign countries, particularly in Europe. So they had firsthand knowledge of how government worked over there. These men had read from the same books and some of the same philosophers. Cicero, Roman born, Polybius from Greece, Baron Charles de Montesquieu from France, and Adam Smith, who we discussed last week from Scotland. The average age of a delegate, the delegate was 41 years old. Washington was elected president and he was none of those. He was not an attorney, wasn't a college professor, but they had so much respect and revered him that he was named president of the convention. It was not one of them who could have written the constitution, but it was the collective wisdom of all of them. As I said, James Madison was represented by Thomas Jefferson. 
it was four months of tough work with one brainstorming session after another. Who's got the best ideas? Each of these men showed up with an attitude and a love for America that we want to be part of the solution. So we're going to work together here in trying to figure this out. So there was a postponement and this was actually fortuitous because on May 14th, only two states arrived, one of which was Virginia. So guess what they did? Instead of sitting around twiddling their thumbs, they began holding early morning planning sessions. And it was led by James Madison. And they created what was called the Virginia's 15 Resolves. This was gonna provide the foundation for the beginning of the convention in terms of things that they wanted to discuss things that they thought the new system of government should contain and became the basic agenda for the, con for the convention. One of the first points they wanted to make was adopt a system which would provide for the common defense, secure liberty, and the general welfare of American citizens. These were a direct response to their experience in the Revolutionary War where they almost lost the war due to the articles of confederation because there was no army. I mean, there was an army, but it wasn't very well taken care of. So they wanted also Congress to be divided into two houses. And they wanted an executive, a strong president and a judiciary. So these were the things that provided the foundation. So from May 14th to May 25th, Virginia got together. They were the largest state of the union and they really let out with regard to this. So the Constitution, Constitutional Convention officially opens on May 25th, 1787. George Washington, as I indicated, uh, was elected as convention president. Rhode Island didn't show up. Uh, a major, William Jackson was named secretary. However, he did such a poor job that James Madison took all of the notes. This is one issue I wanna talk about in some, some detail. General agreement was reached on all the major issues except three that which I'm gonna talk about here. But this is where the inspiration in the Constitutional Convention came in. As these gentlemen would talk things out until a consensus was reached where you would give in when someone made a good point. There were no political parties at the time, so nobody to answer to. So they felt free to share their feelings and thoughts without being afraid to change their minds when they got new information. They all showed up with a mindset of looking for solutions. And they were all had foundation, had foundational principles in liberty and they loved America. One thing that also occurred during the con convention it was kept in secret. Here they are in the middle of the summer and they locked all the doors and closed all the windows. And you, you mean no press were allowed? Absolutely not, no press were there. Can you imagine if the reporters were in there recording these things and then writing again what they saw in the paper? That would have had a detrimental impact on the debate. And they used this interesting parliamentary procedure called the Committee of the Whole. So when they would get to something very difficult to, to discuss, 
and they would be hashing it out, really going at it. One person would get up and say, Mr. President, I move that we adjourn to a committee of the whole. And what that would allow them to do was to discuss things in a less formal way that wouldn't be part of the actual convention where they would vote on it. But it was something that they could do to express themselves and hash things out and work it out and go back and forth. So nobody would move when this motion was made except George Washington. He would leave his chair and then a Nathaniel Gorham from Massachusetts would take his place. And then he would say, is there a proposal to be brought to the Committee of the Whole? And somebody would come forward with a proposal. And this would permit the free flow of discussion to reach temporary decisions that would not be counted as the official position of the convention. Dr. Skousen in, in one, of his, one of his lectures brings up this issue that uh, as an example, and I'm gonna try to honor him by going through what he did. And he brought up an interesting point. He said, so one of the proposed issues that they discussed was, well, how many men do you want to be president? So you've got James Wilson, for example, who would get up from Pennsylvania and he would say, we want one president, a single president, a strong president operating in a limited scope of authority. Then you see Edmund Randolph from Virginia get up and say, wait a minute, That's, that reminds me of King George. We don't want one, we need at least three presidents, one for the New England states, one for the middle states and one for the South. There is safety in numbers, you know, James Wilson would get up and respond and say, wait a minute, Edmund, there is no safety in numbers. Do you remember the 30 tyrants of Greece? Let us not make the same mistake by pointing two councils like they did in Rome. We need one strong president, limited in his authority, but with fixed responsibility without buck passing. So Randolph thought about it and said, you know what, Mr. Wilson, you're right. And so that's how they, that's an example of how they work things out. Can you envision Congress today operating that way until they reach a consensus, which would actually force them to focus on bigger issues, thereby leaving the smaller issues, the day-to-day -day issues, the more difficult issues to states and local governments. The founders never wanted Congress to be involved in education, to be involved in welfare, healthcare, or workplace safety. So what were the three compromises? The first one was how do we deal with slavery? I've done a lot of research on this topic. And one of the reasons I did was because I couldn't reconcile the fact that this is an inspired document and penned by men who were directed by our heavenly father. And then I thought, okay, now they, they had slaves, they had slaves. And my feeling is that God doesn't work through degenerates, hypocrites, or individuals like this to bring about his work. So there's something that's missing here. So I started doing a deep dive on this issue. And what I learned was there was a consensus in the room, even from the Southern delegates, that 
Slavery needed to be abolished. It needed to go away. How can we fight and ask for freedom when we've got people, men and women who are just like us in bondage? And that was the consensus. But then the Southern states, Georgia, North Carolina, South Carolina say, hey, look, if we free the slaves now, there will come upon us an economic calamity that we will not be able to recover from. So then the North said, okay, we'll give you 20 years to phase it out because a lot of these slaves were mortgaged to the banks in Europe. We'll give you 20 years to phase it out. And it actually appears in Article 1, Section 9 of the Constitution in 1808. They stopped the importation of slaves to America. And if you recall, if you look through the document, there's no mention of the word slave or slavery in the Constitution as Madison thought it wrong to admit in the Constitution the idea that there could be property in men. The language adopted in the document was meant to show no approval of slavery, but only an acknowledgement that it existed and would remain for the time being because the framers were laser focused on building the Republic, acting on the assumption that the Union was the highest good and that ultimately all problems, including slavery, would be resolved if they could only keep the country together long enough. And of course, the cotton gin was invented and things changed and avarice and greed took over. And then several years later, we had the Civil War, but that was the intent of the founders. Another compromise involved, how do we represent show representation in the Congress pertaining to the individual states or the population of the states. We'll talk about that a little bit later. And there was a compromise on the federal government regulating interstate commerce because the South was afraid that the North would dictate to them how, they, how and where they could sell their textiles because they wanted to sell them to Europe at a high price. And so they were fearful of all that. So they compromised on interstate commerce. So the delegates actually got there to meet for the sole and express purpose of amending the Articles of Confederation, but they were so poorly written that there was not much that they could glean from that. So they had to start over and it was, and they began with those Virginia resolves, as I mentioned, and they felt justified in proposing a completely new constitution. So the convention took four months four months of brainstorming to reach final agreement. Okay, so here's some of the highlights of the Constitutional Convention. Number one, they dealt with the easy issues first and they saved the debatable issues for later. On June 14th, a plan was presented called the New Jersey Plan for representation, representing the smaller states. And so if you go to your manual, let's go through some of these. James Wilson of Pennsylvania compared the Virginia plan and the New Jersey plan point by point. So the Virginia plan, as it relates to the legislature, wanted two branches, two houses. The New Jersey plan, a single body. When it comes to the source of legislative power, the Virginia plan wanted it in the people. The New Jersey plan wanted it in the states, of course, because they were very fearful that the larger states would overshadow and squash the smaller states. 
as it relates to a president or an executive. Virginia plan, they just wanted one, one president. Fixed, response, fixed responsibility on one person. In the New Jersey plan, they wanted more than one president. And so legislative action, according to the Virginia plan by majority, and in the Jersey plan by a small minority. And then you come to Alexander Hamilton, who proposed a plan that was patterned much after the British, British system, which was so interesting. He wanted a single executive chosen for life with absolute veto power over all legislation. Can you imagine all of them sitting there listening to this? Senators to be chosen for life, representatives of the people in the House for three-year terms, governors of the states chosen by the federal government. So Alexander Hamilton was advocating for a very strong federal government. So they were very polite to Mr. Hamilton. They applauded, but they immediately rejected this plan. Soon after Hamilton leaves, but comes back in the end, and as you all know, he was instrumental along with John Adams and John Jay in drafting and crafting the book called The Federalist Papers, which was created to encourage the states to ratify the constitution that was created by these great men in Philadelphia. And then, so Mr. Madison makes a very passionate speech for his plan and the Jersey and Hamilton's plans, as I indicated, were voted down and the Virginia plan was adopted. So now we enter into a crisis period for the convention. So after June 19th, the convention begins to tackle the more prickly issues like representation and how to pick a president. So the next five weeks are known as the crisis period of the convention. And this is where we come to Benjamin Franklin, who realizes that we need to do something a little bit differently. And in your manual, section H here, Benjamin Franklin says this, and he rises to his feet in great pain and speaking to Washington, he said, quote, I have lived, sir, a long time. And the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth, that God governs in the affairs of men. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? We have been assured, sir, in the sacred writings that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. I firmly believe this, and I also believe that without his concurring aid, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel. We shall be divided by our little partial local interests. Our projects will be confounded and we ourselves shall become a, a reproach and a byword down to future ages. And what is worse, mankind may hereafter from this unfortunate instance, despair of establishing government by human wisdom and leave it to the chance leave it to chance, war, or conquest. I therefore beg leave to move that hereafter prayers imploring the assistance of heaven 
and its blessing on our deliberations be held in this assembly every morning before we proceed to business and that one or more of the clergy of this city be requested to officiate in that service. So there is Benjamin Franklin, who, as we've indicated before, more money was spent going after the character of Benjamin Franklin and all the founders put together because he was known as the father of morality, the golden patriot. And here he is admonishing the men and encouraging them to invoke prayer to help them, that they needed the heavens to intervene to help them through this crisis period. So Franklin's motion to invite a minister to serve as a chaplain, however, did not pass because they didn't have money to pay for the minister. Now, nevertheless, his plea had a sobering effect on the quarreling delegates and they set about their task with greater determination. So from July 10th to July 16th, there was quite a bit of contention over how to elect a president. And there were actually 60 ballots that were cast to determine about moving to an electoral college. We really only used that once the correct way in our history, maybe twice until we had political parties come onto the scene. And since that second election, we have not quite used the electoral college the way we should. And we will again once the Constitution is restored. So there was also a breakthrough on a compromise over representation in Congress. So the small states were determined that there would be one vote for each state. The larger states insisted representation be according to population, of course. So delegates from Georgia would argue that this would give the big state of Virginia 16 times more representatives than Georgia. Madison would argue back to Georgia, well, if each state had one vote, then a person from Georgia would have 16 times more representation than a citizen from Virginia. So here comes Roger Sherman from Connecticut with a compromise. He says, let's have equal re representation in the Senate so that all the states would be equal in the Senate, but then let's base the seats in the House on population. So that went through as a compromise, thanks to Roger Sherman, who was also part of the drafting of the Declaration of Independence. So it's interesting to note, before the 16th Amendment, and we'll talk about this next week and then in Seminar 3 and Seminar 4, before the 16th Amendment, which allowed the federal government to bypass the states and go directly into your pockets to pay for the bills of the federal government, taxes were based on representation in Congress. So if Virginia had, say, represented 8% of the representation in Congress in the House of Representatives, then they were responsible for 8% of the federal budget. And then the states could decide how they would come up with that money to send to the federal government to pay their share. And hopefully we'll go back to that, which would eliminate all this largesse that's going to the Congress. Today, I just read, they came to an agreement, a bipartisan agreement with regard to infrastructure, and they're gonna spend $983 billion of money we do not have that they are going to print and put us further in the debt 
And at some point, inflation will be so unbearable. But they continue to move forward this way because the Constitution has been changed in such a way that allows this to happen. Okay, let's go to the next slide. This is one of my most favorite slides. And it's also depicted in your book without the eagles, but you've got ruler's law on the left and anarchy or tyranny, anarchy on the right, no law or anarchy, ruler's law on the left or tyranny. Now, the, if you think about government, what is the definition of government? Well, it's a system of ruling or controlling. So the founders, if they looked at us today and saw how we have pretty much divided political government by left and right, Democrat, Republican, we would have Democrats on the left, Republicans on the right. And back in my day, it was communism on the left and fascism on the right. We confuse the fact that fascism and communism are pretty much the same thing. Fascism is where the government controls the means of production, controls industry. There's no personal property there. The founders looking at that today would say we were foolish. They would tell us that the two extremes that you want to avoid are tyranny on the left and anarchy on the right. Those are the extremes you want to avoid. And you want to find a government where there's enough security to protect the rights of the people, but not too much government to abuse them. And so we can take our hat off to the founders for finding its for stopping that pendulum between tyranny and anarchy right there in the middle, in the middle for people's law. So what do I mean by this pendulum? So you've got a king in place and he's abusing the people or she's abusing the people. The people get together, they revolt, and then the pendulum swings to anarchy and they go to anarchy and they say, dang, we need a king. We need somebody to rule us. And they go right back to tyranny. And it's a vicious cycle that goes through history. And the founders studied history. They knew this. So they were able to stop that pendulum right in the center. And there you've got the family on the bottom. You've got the federal government at the top. And the family is represented in hundreds of millions of individuals, tens of millions of families. And it's located in your, in your manual here. And so when we look at the founders' new government, we think about the separation of vertical and horizontal powers. So the vertical powers, the states were supposed to be there to divide us and protect us from a runaway federal government. The Constitution was really designed to protect families. And so the states were there to stand on that wall to protect the people from a runaway federal government. And that's been removed with the passage of the 17th Amendment, which we'll discuss in some more detail. And then you've got the vertical powers dividing power between the federal and the state government. And then you have the horizontal powers that divides power between the three separate branches. And the beautiful thing about this picture here, you've got the eagle. So he's got two eyes in the center, the House and the Senate. And those eyes must see eye to eye as legislation must pass through both houses. 
And the genius of this graphic is that those three heads, the executive, the legislative, and the judicial, those are the horizontal powers. There is three separate departments, but one neck. They have to operate through one neck. So if any one of those necks, any one of those heads becomes abusive, then the other two have a peaceful power to pull them back into alignment. And that's what the Constitution was designed to do, was to divide power, provide checks and balances to deal with something that has never changed and will never change through human history, and that's man's lust for power. Power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. The founders didn't even trust themselves. Jefferson said, let there be no confidence in men, but bind them down from mischief with the chains of the Constitution. Checks and balances, the symbolism of the eagle. You've got the head represents the legislative branch. The left head represents the executive branch. The right head represents the judicial branch. And there are also two wings. So let's look at that picture on the screen there. So the wing number one, the wing on the left, is referred to as the problem-solving wing or the wing of compassion. And this is your House of Representatives. Every two years they're elected. They go there, they're represented by the people. So they're trying to solve problems. We can do it better. We can fix these problems. We can pass all this legislation to deal with problems so we can help our people and get reelected. But then you've got wing number two, which is on the right. That wing has the responsibility of conserving the nation's resources and protecting the people's freedom. That was the United States Senate. Going back to what I said before about the 16th Amendment, the states were responsible for paying the bill for the federal government. So of course, when legislation would come out of the House, the Senate would ask two questions. Can we afford it? Do we want to afford it? And number two, does it infringe on the rights or the individual freedom of the people? That was the state's job to protect the people. The problem is when you have a Senate and a House that are elected by the people, what do you think they're going to be focused on? They're going to be focused on solving problems, getting reelected, spending money, bringing home the bacon. And that is not what the founders intended. They wanted these two wings to work in unison, to flap together. And they wanted the wing number two to ask those questions. So if you can imagine, go, let's go back to 1936 when they were debating the issue of Social Security. And by this time, the 17th Amendment had been passed and the Senate was being voted by the people instead of appointed by the state legislatures. So 1936, here comes the debate on Social Security. The House passes the bill and the Senate probably, if they had not passed the 17th Amendment, would have asked these two questions. First of all, can we afford it? And number two, does it infringe on the rights of the people? And the answer to both of them is no. Be, you know, they're well-intentioned regarding taking care of the welfare of people when they get older, but that's not the role of the federal government. That is not the role of the federal government. 
and taking someone's money out of their paycheck without them having a say over it infringes upon their freedom. So let's go over to the signing. On Monday, September 17th, Constitution Day 1787, 41 out of the original 55 delegates met in the East Room of Independence Hall for the signing of the Declaration. 41 of the 55 original delegates met for the signing. And it was signed by the majority of each delegation. Three delegates did not sign. George Mason of Virginia, Edmund Randolph of Virginia, and Elbridge Gerry of Massachusetts. And the reason they didn't want to sign was that it did not have a Bill of Rights. Most of the delegates said, we don't need a Bill of Rights. We've, already, we've drafted up a constitution that doesn't give the federal government authority in terms of infringing upon your rights. And these three gentlemen said, well, that's fine and dandy, but you better put him in anyway because we don't trust the federal government. So the states got together and sent in well over a hundred amendments to the constitution in the form of the Bill of Rights. And it was James Madison who whittled them down to 10. So when the constitution was signed on September 17, 1787 and sent to the, to the Congress at the time, the Congress thought so much of it that they didn't change one word and they sent it on to the states. And we will talk more in detail next week about what exactly happened in terms of getting us to complete ratification by the states. And then there's a picture in your manual. As the delegates were signing, James Madison carefully watched each of them. When Franklin signed, Madison wrote, the old man wept. So as the delegates were signing, Franklin referred to a carving of the sun on the back of George Washington's chair. And you can actually see a replica of that chair in Independence Hall. He said, quote, I have often in the course of the session looked at that sun behind the president without being able to tell whether it was a rising, it was rising or setting. But now at length, I have the happiness to know that is a rising and not a setting sun. And we all remember what Ben Franklin said to a, a woman who was outside of Constitution Hall or Independence Hall, I'm sorry, asking her, what have you given us? And Ben Franklin's response, we've given you a republic if you can keep it. <laughs> 